0: Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast of The Lancet Oncology. My name is Marcia, and today I have the pleasure to speak with two authors of papers for our April issue. The first of these authors is Dr. Lisa Yezani from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, with whom I will be discussing her series paper on disability and cancer. Dr. Yezani, welcome. Could you please give us a brief overview of how many people live with disability worldwide and how many of these people are affected by cancer?
1: There are more than 1 billion people worldwide, about 15% of the global population with disability. Disabilities are very diverse, including disabilities related to mobility, vision, hearing, communication, learning, memory, intellect, mental health, and other aspects of how people interact with their societal and physical environments. Disability rates increase with age and are higher in some racial and ethnic groups than others. And so people with disability get cancer at the same rates as other people and sometimes even at higher rates. They can have higher prevalence of risk factors for certain cancers, such as tobacco use and obesity. Some in childhood, such as people with spina bifida, can have high rates of radiation exposure. People with particular disabilities show signs of premature aging. People with certain types of intellectual disability or schizophrenia can have higher levels of inflammation and oxidative stress than those without these conditions. Individuals with schizophrenia or neurodegenerative disorders can also exhibit shortened telomere lengths. Preliminary evidence suggests that people with disability may have higher rates of certain cancers, breast, cervical, colorectal, and prostate cancers and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, even after accounting for various risk factors such as age, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, smoking status, and body mass index.
0: Thank you. In this series, it is made clear that people with disabilities face barriers throughout the cancer care continuum. What are the main barriers they encounter from screening to treatment? And what issues raise particular concern in cancer care for people with disabilities?
1: People with disabilities worldwide face remarkably similar barriers to care and therefore disparities in care, such as for breast and cervical cancer screening. First off, people with disability are routinely excluded from the randomized clinical trials conducted to create the scientific evidence base that guides treatment decision-making. Second, and this is worldwide, some healthcare professionals, including doctors, have stigmatized or discriminatory attitudes toward people with disability and make erroneous assumptions about their lives and thus may not give them equal quality care. There is a lack of accessible examination equipment, such as exam tables or imaging equipment. Communication may be problematic because of inadequate communication accommodations. Even basics like transportation are a problem for people with disability getting care. One special concerns relates to something called diagnostic overshadowing or attributing all new signs and symptoms a patient presents with to their underlying disabling condition. The failure to fully evaluate these new signs and symptoms can result in delays, either delays in making the cancer diagnosis or in identifying complications of the cancer or its treatment. Another concern relates to failure to anticipate the functional consequences of the cancer or its treatment and not planning adequately for how the patient will function at home. An obvious example is a woman who self propels her manual wheelchair and has a mastectomy or even less invasive surgery for breast cancer that then affects her ability to use her arms she would not be able to function at home without being able to operate her wheelchair.
0: In a world that should thrive for justice, how can healthcare systems improve the cancer care for people with disabilities?
1: The first thing to recognize, as the World Health Organization says, is that across the lifespan, disability is virtually a universal human experience. It is important for healthcare professionals to understand both their explicit and implicit biases relating to disability. In addition, with the numbers growing, every physician and healthcare system can expect to see more patients with disability. Therefore, healthcare delivery systems should plan for disabled patients by renovating or designing spaces to be accessible and obtaining accessible equipment. Under the principle of universal design, Changes that benefit patients with disability will also likely benefit others, including clinical staff. Over time, any higher costs might be offset by reductions in staff injuries and their associated costs. There must be effective communication between disabled people and their clinicians. Therefore, communication accommodations must meet patients' needs, such as sign language interpreters or involving a trusted caregiver. If physicians feel uncomfortable caring for disabled patients, they should partner with other physicians who are experienced in this area, such as physiatrists or physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists. Physicians should also, as they consider treatment for these patients, anticipate the potential impact on patients' functional status and set-in-place rehabilitation therapy, home-based services, or assistive technologies that can help patients who need supports. Finally, the 2008 United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities recognized the human rights of people with disabilities, including their right to equitable healthcare and reasonable accommodations to ensure access across the spectrum of care, which would include cancer care.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Yazani, for talking about such an important topic. Following this interview, I will now be talking with Dr. Jordan Marchak from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in the USA about another important topic in cancer care, mental health problems in childhood, adolescent and young adult cancer survivors. Dr. Marchak, welcome. What are the main mental health issues faced by childhood, adolescent and young adult cancer survivors?
2: The results of our review found that there are several main areas of uh, mental health concerns among childhood, adolescent, and young adult cancer survivors, Um, those being uh, depression, which is experienced by anywhere from 5 to 40% of survivors. Anxiety was reported the prevalence between 1% and 27% of survivors experience anxiety. Psychological distress is also common, um, experienced by two to thirty-five percent of survivors, um, as well as behavioral problems in our younger survivors, um, our childhood and adolescent age survivors. Anywhere from twelve to twenty-two percent of those survivors are experiencing behavior problems. In addition, um, we're finding some post-traumatic stress. Where anywhere from 1 to 18% of survivors are actually meeting criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but then when we look and look at subclinical uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms, we find that 12 to 40% of survivors are experiencing moderate to severe symptoms. And anywhere from 64 to 71% of survivors are experiencing mild post-traumatic stress symptoms. Which was really quite striking. And then, lastly, the other area that we are also concerned about is suicidality. We found that anywhere from 5 to 12% of survivors are experiencing suicidal ideation, and 1 to 4% of survivors actually have um, an attempted suicide. And around 0.18 to 1.6% of survivors uh, actually experience death by suicide. So those all in conjunction are the most common problems um, that are really faced by survivors.
0: Um, There are international recommendations regarding this aspect of cancer care, but your paper mentions a lack of harmonization. Can you elaborate about the disparities found between the different guidelines? Yes. So our
2: group first evaluated uh, concordances and discordances among the existing clinical practice guidelines uh, and we looked at four different groups we looked at the guidelines from the children's oncology group uh, the dutch childhood oncology group the scottish intercollegiate guidelines network and the united kingdom children's cancer study group late effects group and so between those four different sets of CPGs, they were all developed independently. And we found that they all identified survivors as being at increased risk for poor mental health, but they were discordant in all other areas. So they didn't agree upon what the risk factors were for poor mental health. They didn't agree upon what age surveillance should start for survivors. They didn't agree upon the frequency of surveillance for mental health problems among survivors. They also didn't agree upon a surveillance modality or what type of measurement um, should be used. Uh, And lastly, they uh, didn't agree upon what interventions should be suggested to survivors if mental health problems were found via surveillance. And so the aim of our group's work under the sponsorship of the International Late Effects of Childhood Cancer Harmonization Group, or IGHG. We sought to harmonize these recommendations for mental health surveillance in all survivors of childhood, adolescent, and young adult cancer diagnosed before age 25.
0: Thank you. So what does International Guideline Harmonization Group for Psychological Late Effects proposes with this new guideline? So
2: we propose um, a set of recommendations. We propose seven new recommendations that really get at all of those discordances from the other guidelines. We recommend that survivors and their healthcare providers um, be aware um, that survivors are at risk for the mental health problems I, we discussed earlier. Uh, we outline what the risk factors are Uh, We recommend that um, surveillance be initiated at the beginning of the survivorship process uh, and continue throughout the lifespan. Uh, We also recommend um, that surveillance uh, doesn't wait to start until survivorship, that our group agrees upon expert consensus that mental health surveillance would be valuable uh, for patients during the active treatment process. Uh, our group proposes um, a set of questions um, that survivor practitioners can use to augment uh, their medical history taking to uh, begin screening survivors for mental health problems. We outline an algorithm uh, to suggest to practitioners uh, what they can do to help survivors if mental health problems are found. Uh, and so, altogether, I think uh, the main push of our work is to promote the adoption of a detect and intervene approach for mental health problems. That's really more aligned with the traditional surveillance for physical late effects and long-term follow-up care. And our recommendations, all seven of them together really highlight the importance of including mental health as a key component of survivor-focused healthcare.
0: Thank you to both our speakers today and to all of our listeners. These papers are available at lancetoncology.com and with our April issue.